All right, we, I hit record and I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. Today, I'm interviewing Rebecca Bevins, who is the Director of Training and Program Development in the Office of Child Safety here at DCS. The Office of Child Safety and its investigators train for and carry out the work of investigations, and they often coordinate their work with law enforcement, child advocacy centers, and prosecutors. This division also supports the preservation of families, and one way they incorporate that preservation and permanency into their practice is through taking a deep look at recurring issues that our families face and take action in the ways that we approach the work. In honor of October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we have asked Ms. Bevins to discuss the work the department is involved in addressing domestic violence and how that intersects with child welfare. Welcome to the podcast, Ms. Bevins. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Wonderful. So, uh, Ms. Bevins, tell us about your current role with the department and, and some of your experiences in child welfare. Absolutely. So my current role, I'm the Director of Training and Program Development specific to the Office of Child Safety. So that includes our Child Protective Services Unit and our Child Abuse Hotline Unit. And essentially the program development component of my job is to really identify different areas where our staff can be supported um, just to make their lives easier so they can have better engagement and work with the families that we work with every day. Um, So I oversee a lot of really exciting projects like our statewide child sexual abuse prevention committee, and most applicable to today, our domestic violence liaison program. And essentially, that allows us to partner with the domestic violence shelters in our communities um, to really bridge the gap between child welfare and domestic violence services, and to really increase the learning. And when all of our community partners are on the same page, and we're all trained the same way, and we understand each other's policies and regulations, we're really able to provide better services for the families. So that is going to be one big part of the work that we're doing in Tennessee to address domestic violence for families. I love that community partnership and speaking the same language and helping children and families. And I know that our investigators and we at the department work with families to promote safety and permanency and well-being. Um, But through these experiences, can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of ways domestic violence may impact children? Absolutely. For the longest time, there was a misconception that if a child didn't witness any of the physical violence, that they weren't being impacted at all. Um, And we know that that's just not true. Um, Kids can see the day after bruises, the injuries that have lasted, but they also just see the intimidation and the fear in the survivor's eyes. They also see how the power and control can impact the entire family. For example, the non-offending parent may not have access to certain um, documentation or certain finances, 
and that impacts their life as well. Um, I know that one case that we've worked on recently, um, the mother was never allowed to leave the house with all of the children at the same time. And that was a way that the kids were impacted, but it was the um, offender's, you know, need for power and control and the, his, his desire to keep the mother from ever leaving him. And he figured if he always had one of the kids with him that she could never leave because she would never leave one kid behind. Um, so that's a really concrete example of how kids can kind of get caught up in that. Um, however, we do know that um, current research shows that witnessing the abuse of domestic violence has the same risk to children's mental health as the child being abused directly. And so I think knowing that, and that's what the research is showing us, just shows how important of an issue this is for children. I really, um, scratch that, hold on. That's very interesting about the power and control that we see with the offending parent uh, that can actually get in the way of the parent who is taking care of the child, of them from taking the child to the doctor or to school or some of those basic uh, needs that a child may have. And um, I think you touched on that we often see domestic violence in the cases that we work when we work with families, does uh, do DCS investigators often see domestic violence in our work with families? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so what's fascinating is that DCS has just started our true data collection around domestic violence, and that started on October 1st. So for the first time ever, we're going to have the ability as the agent of an agency to see how often are our, are our DCS cases involving domestic violence. Um, not only that, we do get cases that come in for other allegations and then throughout the process of our global assessment and truly engaging the family, we'll learn about other domestic violence concerns that occur. However, it's really important for our staff to know, for anyone to know that coming at someone and just, you know, blanketly saying, oh, is there domestic violence in your home? That's really not a proper screening for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of shame that goes into domestic violence. There's a lot of fear behind domestic violence. There's also some domestic violence victims who don't feel like they're in a domestic violence situation. Maybe they've never learned what a healthy relationship looks like and this is normal to them. Um, but it's really important that we figure out ways to truly assess for it um, in a way that's really um, trauma-informed and truly engages the non-offending caregiver around what their relationships look like and how we can be a support to them. That implies a deep knowledge about the dynamics of domestic violence. And I know that you're part of that support and training that we offer our investigators so that they are able to do those very meaningful screenings. Also, based on that deep knowledge and training, I understand that the Office of Child Safety has developed some new policy that's going to support our investigators to better help and serve families as well as promote preservation. Could you tell us about the policy and some of those key ideas? Absolutely. And I just wanted to reiterate what you were mentioning about training. Um, you know, our entire agency really prioritizes educating our staff on domestic violence. It starts in pre-service. 
it continues on. We have amazing webinars around it. We engage our community partners to help train our staff on it. Um, and then we have additional training specific to our child protective services investigators um, to really learn what they need to know specific to their role. Um, you know, and really getting into those questions of what does safety look like in these situations? Because we know from the research that removing the non-offending caregiver and the child from the offender doesn't necessarily equate to safety. In fact, it oftentimes significantly increases the risk. So we have to really uh, retrain our brains and how we look at these situations and how we're developing safety plans and what we're thinking about in terms of removals, um, you know, and how we're truly partnering with that non-offending caregiver. Um, you know, our agency has prioritized domestic violence training so much that they even sent um, a huge group of us to a conference in Texas a few years ago for the Safe and Together conference. And I think that we as an agency have prioritized those values of partnering with the non-offending caregiver, holding the um, perpetrator accountability, accountable, excuse me, holding the perpetrator accountable for their behaviors as a parent and that domestic violence is a parenting choice. So with all of those beliefs, we have incorporated those into our trainings and we've incorporated them into our policies as well because we want everyone in our agency to be on the same page and how we respond to this. Um, but like you mentioned, we do have a new policy that helps provide further support around how to work these cases. As we moved forward with developing the new allegation, we felt that it was equally important to have a complete work aid. So work aid 13 is titled CPS cases involving domestic violence. And we get into the nitty gritty of these cases and what engagement looks like. How do we truly engage the non-offending caregiver? How do we build that trust and rapport? And then how do we equally engage the alleged perpetrator? Because in our cases, we always address the entire family. And oftentimes the perpetrators in these cases are the mom or the dad. And so DCS serves the family and the children. At the end of the day, regardless of what's happened, this person is likely the parent to one of these children. So we have to learn how we can work with them as well to address these behaviors and try to help, help heal the family and move them forward. Um, so our work aid discusses that. It also talks around interviewing strategies because there's so many ways that domestic violence cases are so different. We truly have to think through how our interview with maybe the child or the non-offending caregiver could potentially put them in further risk of harm. Um, mm -hmm. So how do we do that? How do we interview them and keep them safe still? Um, as well as our safety. Um, we know that domestic violence offenders are typically very violent. And we know from research that that is the most dangerous time for law enforcement to respond to a scene. And I don't think it's a huge leap to say that it's probably more dangerous for um, social workers as well. So mm -hmm. keeping that in mind, what are our additional safety precautions that we can take when we're interviewing and engaging um, the alleged perpetrator on these cases as well? Um, also keeping in mind the importance of not dehumanizing um, the alleged perpetrators when we're talking to the family about them. Because even though in our system, you know, they come in labeled as an alleged perpetrator, to this family, that's still dad, that's still husband. And, you know, people are very complex. They have very dynamic relationships. Um, you know, they're- Stop, I'm sorry, I'm so oh, sorry. I thought I had turned off my phones before. I, totally I, turned, I thought I had turned off the, oh, you were. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, you're totally fine. 
Tell me when you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Um, families have very complex relationships. Yes. And even though the offender may do bad things to the family and have created an environment that's unhealthy, there are still good things about them that their family loves about them. And that's important for us coming into the home to recognize. So we have to be very careful how we label them, how we refer to them, um, and truly remembering that they're humans that we can hopefully help to heal as well and bring the family closer together and move them out of this really toxic relationship. And we do that through our strong partnerships with our community partners um, to put in services and to hold the offender accountable for the behaviors that they're um, putting in the home. Yeah. So also in our work aid is how to truly assess safety and risk in domestic violence cases. Um, we really recommend using assessments like the danger assessment, lethality assessment. There's so many that are used in the domestic violence world that can be utilized by our case managers as well to help and make informed decisions. Um, one of the important components of domestic violence is learning how to identify patterns and behavioral patterns. and past just identifying them, how do we document them in our casework? So oftentimes, you know, our documentation is crucial, crucial in court cases, crucial in safety yeah. decisions. So our documentation really must represent the information that we're gathering. And I want to tease out a little more information about how even a perpetrator or a non-offending parent may not even realize that the path they're on is a domestic violence pattern, that pattern of core or control. Um, could you maybe speak to maybe intergenerational parenting and, and how people fall into that without really realizing that they are in a domestic violence situation. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think that there is a true need for agencies like DCS and other community agencies as well to be able to recognize kind of the starting points of these patterns and intervening early. Because if we can see some of those power and control issues starting to emerge, or like you mentioned, you know, intergenerational trauma, is this something that Maybe, you know, the perpetrator themselves experienced as a kid. Um, maybe their father, there was a cycle of domestic violence in their family growing up. Um, you know, there's so many, so many, so many of these offenders have had ACEs themselves, adverse childhood experiences yeah. throughout their lives. So when we're coming into this home, it's the same way that we, le we have learned to address um, substance users, you know. Mm -hmm. So many times behind the reason that they're taking you know, drugs is because they have things from their childhood that's unresolved trauma. Um, and so we're coming in from, you know, less of a penalizing criminal justice approach to a more therapeutic approach. And that's even how our courts are moving as well. Um, so I think that domestic violence isn't going to be too far off from that because, you know, we, we have seen so many patterns of domestic violence offenders being put into prison, being released, either getting back with, you know, the victim or getting back with, or getting within a new relationship um, mm -hmm. and the behaviors never stop. So what are, what can we do to truly intervene uh, as early as possible and be effective? And that's going to require, uh, honestly, a lot of innovation, 
a lot of look into the research, um, and a lot of really strong partnerships with different agencies uh, and just different and different systems. Um, but I do think, like you were saying, Serena, this really dives into what have people experienced in their lives. Definitely. And another question I have is, what would you say to someone who says, why doesn't the non-offending parent, which is often the mom, why doesn't she just leave? I'm very glad that you asked me that because that is probably the number one question that I get asked. Um, not only in the workplace when we're making these decisions, but also just in the community when I talk about what I do for work or just some knowledge I have around domestic violence. Um, and people get so frustrated. And so yeah. the, the number one response that I give is, well, why doesn't the offender just stop? You know, yeah. it's so, that question is so, there's so much depth behind it. You know, um, yeah. you have to understand, first of all, the power of course of control and the intimidation. Also, what does an emotional abuse look like and what does that do to a person? Because when you have completely taken away someone's self-esteem, which maybe they didn't have much to start with to begin with, mm -hmm. um, you know, what does that do for their ability to think that they could make it on their own when someone's telling them every day that they're nothing and that they can't survive without them? Loaded yeah. on top of that, when there's children involved, there's a whole other layer of intimidation, of threats, of, you know, saying, well, I'll take you to court and then you'll never get to see them again, especially right. if the offender is the one who holds all the finances. Because mm -hmm. when you go to court, if you can't afford a lawyer and the other person can, you know, that can get incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, I also hear all the time, well, why didn't they just call the police? And it's mm. so... I find it so important to explain that, it, one, it's not that simple. They may not have access to a phone. The offender could be hold it, withholding that. Also, yeah. I know uh, plenty of offenders who have threatened, if you call the police, I'll kill all the police. You know, I'll kill mm -hmm. them as they show up, and I'll right. kill you and the kids. You know, um, and then like I referred to in my um, example earlier, the offender would never allow the mother to leave with all the children at the same time. Mm -hmm. constantly holding that threat over her head that if she left, that other child could still be in danger. Yeah. So they, these relationships are so complex that it's so, it's, you can't come in as an outsider and just judge them and say, well, I would do this because we don't understand what it's like if mm -hmm. we've never been in that situation. So we really have to be, instead, how can we support people who are going through this, understand where they're coming from, and then have services that hold them, hold people accountable for their behaviors. Yes. Yes. And other partners who have that understanding, like we're developing and continuing to develop and, and with those services, I know you've done a lot of work around developing partnerships and working with the domestic violence liaison program. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that program. Absolutely. That program, it really allows us to break down the silos that can exist sometimes between agencies that really do have the same goals. Um, you know, we have been able to develop these um, contracts with, with the domestic violence shelters that allow, you know, their identified staff to come out on cases with us as CPS, which is so incredible because, you know, oftentimes, you know, people want to close their door in DCS's space, 
there's a lot of stigma around our agency showing up. They are so afraid of their children being taken away. And even if we're trying to engage them and tell them, you know, that's not what we're here for. We're here for support and services. It's still hard for people to let their guard down. So having that domestic violence liaison come with us, who's an expert in domestic violence, an expert in how to talk to these victims about what they're going through, and also just being a neutral party, you know, yeah. someone to say like, hey, I'm not here um, to make decisions around the placement of your children. I'm here to support you. Uh, I think that's just, it's really powerful. Um, and it, it supports our staff also. Um, yeah. You know, I've actually been working a couple domestic violence cases lately in one of our counties, and I've been had the pleasure of being able to work with one of our domestic violence liaisons, and she was able to work with me on a case. Um, she was able to engage the non-offending parent and truly document for me what does the pattern of abuse look like. Here wow. are the different um, ways that the power and control has shifted completely to um, the, the offender. Um, and also, this is how the non-offending caregiver was able to main safe, maintain safety for her children all these years. So it really was able to advocate for her strengths as a mother. Um, and it was just, it was such a powerful moment. It was also incredibly helpful as a DCS worker to receive that report from her and be able to put that into our system as part of our documentation and our evidence on this case. So I just, it was so great to, you know, I've been part of this program from the macro level for so long, but to see it actually working in day-to-day casework, it was so beautiful. So thankful for yeah. it. And I love that you bring up that we look for those positives, we look for protective factors, and that always contributes to family preservation and family permanency. Um, and that we're actually being very intentional about finding safety factors that the non-offending parent has been uh, using throughout. Uh, the relationship. So, uh, so important that we're looking for that. It's very sophisticated uh, for us to be doing that. Um, so, Ms. Bevins, if case managers or anyone in the public would like to know more about how to find the policy or the work aid or these protocols, where should they look? Absolutely. So on the Department of Children's Services website, all of our policies and procedures are, are public. Um, so if you go into Chapter 14, that's where you will find um, our policies for um, Child Protective Services and our Child Abuse Hotline. And this one specifically is called our Work Aid 13. It's titled CPS Cases Involving Domestic Violence. Thank you so much. And I know those Work Aids are super helpful for our staff, but for anyone, they can see what our workers are doing out there with our families, the tasks that are involved, the way that those assessments are way, are made, and um, are very helpful in general. Um, let's see, and I can edit, so, you know, I'll be editing some of this, Rebecca. Is there anything else yes. we need to say or that you can think of? at this point. I think so. I feel like we hit on all the really good points. Is there anything that I need to yeah. say because I fumbled on my words? 
No, no. I, like I said, I'll I'll get uhs and ums, and I fumbled plenty too. And there were a few things I was like, uh, edit that, you know. So, <laughs> no, I think we'll. <laughs> uh, I think it'll be great. I think we, yeah, I think we touched on a lot of the information that the general public would be interested in. I just and. Uh, I we hit on like the, the things that pop up. all the all of your little probing questions I really appreciate it because I know those are the things that like people think about domestic violence yeah and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't warn you <laughs> it came oh, up as we were talking but you know no I appreciate that it's more <laughs> organic so I like that <laughs> yeah 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 I think I think it turned out I think so I think it turned out good it's just a good you know it'll be about a good 